What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Fractal Exploratorium. I'm your host, DJ Brule, and joined by me is audio engineer slash friend, Nick Tantillo. What's going on, everybody? Excited to be here for another episode. This will be episode three of our talks about the idea of fractal architecture. Today's episode uh, is going to be kind of the big one. We're going to be talking about resource-based economy or RBE. Um, this is something that used to never be talked about, but is now starting to kind of uh, reach the limelight in its popularity. And it seems to be a recurring topic with you that you you want to bring up things that aren't necessarily at the forefront of you know what's going on right now. And I think that's like a thing that the Fractal Exploratorium is trying to exploit a little bit. Oh, definitely. It's about ideas that are um, based in the future, uh, new ideas that are coming up. As we talked about in one of the other episodes, uh, Killing the Sacred Cow, uh, this is one of those ideas that's killing the sacred cow of the old traditions. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and I believe when, it was funny because when I brought that up the first time, I, I don't believe you've heard of the, the term. And then, you know, it's kind of like anything in the world. When you find out a new word, you hear it for the next week all the time, you know. And I think you believe, I believe you said that you heard heard that term shortly thereafter. Yeah, I did. Uh, it is interesting how that occurs. After you hear a term, then you start. Does that have anything to do with fractals? I mean, realistically, I'm not trying to just, you know play devil's advocate but i am because think about it you talk about how fractals are pa- you know repeating patterns over and over and over is that when you hear something new it's like a new pattern forming and then every time you hear it it's a, it's like building on itself does that well make any it's sense? a new aspect of the pattern that you never saw in in speech and popular culture and just all the th- just think about all the mental input you get per day from everything sight sound sense we're actually almost overloaded in this modern society with way more stimulus input than ever before it's true and so just just think about how many words you pass up and how much you don't pay attention to what's going on and then when something enters your mind and you hear about it more often like when you said say, killing the sacred cow then also i'm kind of conscious of what mm. that thing is and then when it appears again i go oh Right. It's almost like as humans, we're like blind to a lot of things that are happening in, in this world at the at one time. But when you break it down and focus in on these little things, they exist, but it's almost impossible to focus on them all the time. I it is. Like. Well, there's too much going on in this society now, and we weren't programmed for this much stimulus input. And this is a lot more than our, our city ecosystem is way more advanced and complex and has way more sounds and sights and ideas being passed around that's than is normal. Yeah, it just seems like everywhere you turn, no matter when you're outside walking down the street in New York Times or New York Times <laughs> in New York, you know, you you have big electronic billboards and now, you know, you know, everywhere you turn there's something new visually stimulating to look at. And I think that's just like you've mentioned to me off camera just what America seems to be right now, which you know, we'd like to see change, right? Yeah, we we would and you know, following what we're saying about the centering input is that we have a we have a lot of we have a lot of it now, and it's mostly because the internet. You know, everyone's on it all the time, and it, it's like the, if you don't pay attention to the internet, it doesn't seem like that many ideas are flowing through you to think about. You know, you don't hear as much, and 
Like, if you just listen to instrumental music and drive to work, do your job there, and you don't really do any social media or any of that stuff, it's surprising how little sensory input there is. Well, I think so much so now we draw from other influences, and not, not even influences, but just other... Um, you know, other things we see in life. So whether you go on Twitter and you see, it doesn't even have to be somebody famous. It could be somebody else. If you see them working on a certain aspect of their life, like working out or whatever, that's a very basic term, but whatever it may be, it, we're drawn to try and duplicate or replicate those things that they're doing. I think that so much of society has lost um, the will to improvise on their own and create, and we're too busy replicating right now. And I think that, you know, there's so much space us to not only replicate but create I, I would say we not only lost the will but lost the ability to to know how what do you mean uh right to know how to even create yeah because we're we're just stuck in a an endless loop trying to improve 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 but what are we trying to actually improve you know well so not to say we try to improve ourselves our own lives our livelihood would be something to improve and this this is a topic that's going to relate back to resource-based economy, but I want to... But not why we're here today. <laughs> not why we're, well, no, no, it will today, actually later in the episode probably, but um, for right now, I'm going to try to talk about how my idea of fractal architecture is going to tie in to resource-based, and then we'll go right into what is a resource-based economy and how is it different than our current society, our current economic system, capitalism. And how it's different from any monetary-based society, be it capitalism, communism, socialism, any of those economic isms we're going to talk about in its relation to resource-based economy. So, fractal architecture isn't a type of architecture that exists in a vacuum. It goes hand-in-hand. It's paired with uh, resource-based economy. Its full effectiveness and use cannot be fully utilized and realized in our current economic system because it's a type of architecture that is based around post-scarce based society where a means of production is localized and given to the masses. But does that mean that it can't necessarily survive in this current economy? It could, but it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of pointless. It's like, uh, I, I'm not really sure what example to put it. I am curious because, you know, off air, we talked a little about uh, briefly about this, and I'm just curious to know why it wouldn't be able to technically survive in a money-based economy. Because the type of architecture is uh, not based around cost of stuff, but it's based around cost of resources. So not the monetary value that's assigned through a resource given supply and demand and different other market variables which decide the price of something. It's the raw price of the resources that are being used. And in, in a lot of times in the buildings we build today, that our cost analysis is based around our market economy, not about around a resource-based economy. So it's not necessarily based on what the resource is actually valued at, but rather what the resource is valued at with all of the other influence upon it. Yeah, well, um, that, that's market influence, and that's by things that are a lot of times imaginary, like uh, the flood to the start, stock market. I mean, 
stock market doesn't actually produce anything of actual value. It just produces imaginary money, mm -hmm. essentially. Numbers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, technically, all that stuff is imaginary, and technically, the economy is imaginary. It's only works because we trust it to work. If we all stopped believing the economy worked tomorrow, then there wouldn't be any more of this imaginary money or exchange going on. So you are suggesting that the new economy that we could potentially shift to is also imaginary then? It's not. It's based upon actual real resources, which is in the name, well, it's resource-based. Because it's an economy exchange based upon physical resources. But is it not still all based on people believing in it? And well, believe, like, didn't you just say that the reason that it's imaginary, the the prior one current system is, uh, you know, imaginary is because people believe in it. If they stop believing in it, it would be gone. Well, if I give you, let's say, like, a ton of concrete to build one of these buildings, I don't just believe that concrete can build the building. Its value is based upon its actual ability to provide you shelter. It's a real physical I don't just believe in it. It's a real physical resource and we need them. That's like asking, do animals believe in their ecosystem and eating the other animals? Well, they don't believe it. <laughs> it's a real system right. of exchange. You know, those are real resources. It's not uh, money assigned. We, we, we assign value to things based upon other outside influences, not based upon its actual utilitarian use. So you're so just so I'm clear on this. You're suggesting that things should are not. Let me back up. Let me back. Up. So you're suggesting that things are not necessarily based on the value they currently offer right now. They're based on perceived value, or technically not what they're actually offering. It's exactly. Like, it's like you know a lever. A lever you can make out of plastic. But, and it's a, a you know, a so-called cheap item, but what a lever can do for so many different applications is actually ginormous. So that's a really kind of vague example, but are you saying, you know, essentially that it's more about the practical application, not so much about, you know, anything else? Well, a lot of it's market driven. Like if something could be really cheap to make, but it's in high demand and the means of production of that product aren't localized in the hands of the masses they're only and the means to create it is only within a select few companies well the s demand is high and then the only ones that can make it so they can jack up the price right so that's not based in reality necessarily that's not based upon the actual resource uh use of the item it's not based on the raw resources that are actually extracted from the mines or extracted from uh, the, the earth in some sort of way, whatever you're talking about, whether it be coal or oil. Right. And those things are no, you, I mean, you can't just go and extract oil by yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I can't. It's difficult to do. It needs a, a, a specific company. But then once you do it, you're getting constant oil and you're sucking up that resource from the planet and you can price it at your leisure depending on market influence and i mean i think it also has something i mean basic economics or basic business would tell you that it also has to do with what that resource is worth right i mean oil you know there may be a point in time where oil is selling for a particularly low price 
you may keep your oil price higher than everybody else's just knowing that at some point that lower price person has to run out and people you know oil's a hot enough commodity where you eventually will have your wish fulfilled versus you know sand if you're selling sand for a higher price than everybody you know you'd probably never sell your sand because it's not as hot as a commodity well sand is also a readily um uh you know quick side note here uh Sand is made out of silica, which is actually the most abundant resource on the planet. So, more than like oxygen, or yes, the most most abundant element. There's sand all over the place. I feel like I've heard of some like toys with silica sand. Yeah, something. well, sil- silica isn't just sand. I mean, si- sand's made out of silica, but there's silica, silica putty or something, or it's all over the place. It's one of the most abundant. Anyways, beside the point, <laughs> resource-based economy. Besides that point, um. So a resource-based autonomy is based upon the exchange of resources and about the carrying capacity of the earth. So the autonomy would effectively give everyone just enough to get by and live, the very minimum for survival. So we're not talking about handing out everyone luxury yachts and private jets and stuff like that like like we have now uh with just a select few people everyone would be given just the bare minimum and then their labor they're on and what they decide to do will determine how much more they have than other people so it's an equal playing field there's no disadvantages everyone can at least survive with the bare minimum and a lot of people their criticism of that off the bat is well everyone's just going to sit down and be lazy Everyone's going to sit around and do nothing. That's my particular criticism as well. And that's what, that's what everyone does. And I, w- and I would say that I don't think there's any true data to support that everyone was just going to become a bunch of lazy bums. And without some sort of uh, motivation that comes from a uh, capitalist or monetary-based system, the incentive to do anything is lost and that everyone will just sit around and not want to do anything. And I think that gives... I think that discredits humans' ability for imagination and creativity. I think it discredits our current society's will to be creative. Well, I, I think the will is is being lost, and I think one of the reasons is because the monetary system itself. See, I was reading an article earlier about a guy who tried to create a utopia for mice, and what he did is he took... Uh, four mice he found the healthiest best mice he could find and he put them inside this kind of miniaturized city from mice almost and it was like a giant cage where it had the carrying capacity for over 600 mice so they could have a lot and he used four as the breeding group so you know four different breeding groups to uh, have some genetic diversity because of inbreeding and they found that this utopia experiment, he tried by giving, showing what a post-stare society would be. So uh, what, what would happen with an animal if they were, scarcity was taken away from their natural lives. And they had an abundance of resources for, at, at their, you know, at their whim. They could eat whenever and drink whenever. And ultimately, the experiment was an ultimate failure and all the mice ended up dying and 
uh, they started to exhibit strange behavior when they were thrown in the scenario. And people do you know, they use this as an example to say, okay, well, look what happens when you give, um, uh, you take away scarcity from any sort of race. And then they go, well, you know, if mice did it, then humans are prone to that kind of behavior as well. And my biggest problem with the experiment is that they did introduce no scarcity and abundance of resources, but the problem is, is that those mice were still programmed for a scarce-based uh, system. What, just based on instinct? Based a lot on instinct, and that's the system they were used to. They don't just all of a sudden go, oh, different programming. It's an abundance-based system. They go, okay, there's an abundant amount of resources right now, so I'm going to gorge myself, defend it, you know, and act in an irrational manner to make sure I have the most amount of resources. So if I may interject, is this a, is there a parallel here to, you know, I've, I, I know people in my life, and I think we all know people in our lives that, you know, their goal is to eventually one day be rich or have an endless amount of successes or awards or whatever. There's a, a number of things that may be, you know, for me, I have this kind of monetary value that I would like to reach, but that's my single goal like i can set my own ceiling i feel like you know so much of society is working endlessly to a point that they don't even uh they haven't defined and i think defining you know defining goals is a decently important thing um in life so so my question is you know do you think that there's a parallel to human life here there's a huge parallel to human life and the fact is is that we recently became a post-scarce-based society. We were always based on scarcity from day one. We were based on scarce amount of resources. Even after the Neolithic Revolution, which gave rise to mass agriculture around the planet for humans, even after that, the means of production was slow, and it took a while to grow the food and get the food out. It wasn't until recently, until the Industrial Revolution, until we were able to take all the amount of resources we could extract and manufacture them on a mass scale, effectively rendering all of that non-scarce because there was enough for everyone to go around. The problem is, is that during the Industrial Revolution, it required hard, uh, grueling labor to be able to produce that abundance. So because of that, we couldn't just give that to everyone we you know, um, communism would be an example of a society that produces abundance for everyone without anyone having incentive to do um, more effectively they took away the incentive because you know, why should i work a hard job i should just work an easy job and get as much as you know joe blow down the street working the difficult job so i don't want to work his job because we're both getting the same amount of stuff out of it right and I, I i don't believe that our current group of people here would embrace the correct side of that coin well that's because i i i wouldn't want them to embrace communism it's a failed idea now, i'm not saying communism i'm just saying that i believe that too many people would take advantage of not doing anything like communism would suggest Yes, they, they would. But the thing is, our society is different now. Automation has taken the place of the hard-working laborer. 
who has to produce abundance. There's now entire factories that can produce abundant amount of um, material goods without almost anyone working there. And the job is done easy now, manufacturing jobs. If it, All it takes is a person to watch how it's made to understand that everything seems to be made by a robot. Everything's made by automation now. And that's okay because then, you know, places like America don't really manufacture much anymore. We're a service-based industry. So a lot of our stuff is based on uh, working as like a store clerk, cashier, or working as a driver. So service-based industry is like serving people? Yeah, well, we're no longer a manufacturing-based industry here in America, that is. And now, would that make China a manufacturing-based industry? China was. They're transitioning now. They're saying that Africa is going to be the new manufacturing-based industry. Okay, so what dictates when you become a so-called manufacturing industry or uh, whatever industry, service industry? I mean, what, what, does there have to be a tipping point where, you know, a certain percentage of your industry is made up of this type of, you know, work or... I don't know where that tipping point is. I wouldn't be someone to ask about that. That's not exactly my main focus. But what I will say is that... They are considered a manufacturing base and we are considered service based because we have vastly more service jobs than we do manufacturing jobs. I mean, just look at any product where are most of them made China. Probably we don't make a lot here. That's why a lot of factories went overseas. And matter of fact, uh, recently, if anyone here is keeping up with current events, the um, tariffs that have been put on aluminum have caused one of Boeing 737 factories to be moved to China. Uh, what, what does that mean for Boeing? That means Boeing's going to be making their most manufactured aircraft, which is one of the most abundant aircraft in the Boeing fleet. And all that is going to, a lot of that's going to be made in China. I mean, they still have that factory here, but they're going to start making them in China too, which is where one of the largest uh, demands for these aircraft are now. So are you saying that's a loss for America? That is a loss for America. Uh, they, the, the, the Boeing company uh, employs a lot of people in these factories. And if some of the demand for these planes isn't built here, I mean, it would have been nice to have that plant built here, but the aluminum tariff that's gone up on us, which is one of the biggest components these planes use, has made Boeing not want to produce them here. And, you know, they um, their factories are are pretty infamous factories the 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 boeing factory and like washington is massive i feel like some of this is built on greed you know for the ta the tariffs or you know whatever's imposed by america or whatever we're, we're, we're creating these roadblocks in our way of success in a way um for for business in america right we're, we're creating these these problems for other businesses to have to try and maneuver and that might be shooting ourselves in the feet a little bit it is but it's it, it also is getting to the core of what the problem with having a monetary based system is and what what the core of what capital the problem with capitalism and it's why i think capitalism has served its time it at once was a beautiful system when it was first being created um when it, when, when one of the um main philosophers that kind of helped come up with it uh adam smith uh he came he, you know he was he was back in the the 1923 like 
Uh, I think he died in not not nineteen. I mean seventeen. <laughs> Way back then, we you know <laughs> before um our, our our revolution. But he's considered one of the Enlightenment uh, part of the Enlightenment era, along with like uh, Jefferson, Madison, and all those uh, philosophers in the New America, which is one of the reasons we use the system because he was one of those philosophers like them, and he pretty much came up with. Uh, the free market and he was uh, kind of er early libertarian so he was about the will of the free market would solve pretty much most of our social issues and economic class ish issues because back, back then the means of production wasn't in a giant factory so you couldn't you, you almost couldn't have a giant corporation because how could you how did you make like a, a ton of chairs, like thousands of chairs a day, unless you had thousands of people employed and how to pay all those people? Right, because you're saying there was no automation at the time. Yeah, there was no automation. There's no mechanisms to do it. So you had to have you had to have skilled crafters, and there's only so many skilled crafters you could find for something like a chair. So there's only so many people you can employ, and their if, prices were probably pretty high as well. Well, if there's if there's not that many people crafting chairs, then you know, you could not pay the chair guy working under you enough money. He'd go, screw you. Well, I'll just go make one myself and sell it. Like, right. why can't I just do that? So, the, the you know, the economy was based on the sweat of your brow. The amount of work you did was the amount of money you got. was increment to the amount of wealth that you gained. And you could only gain as much wealth as you, uh, as you try to, you know, garner. I mean, now there was still... Uh, class divide because there were still rich nobles who had a lot of their wealth passed down. A lot of them were usually land owning. Uh, that was one of the big things if you had a lot of wealth because you garnered uh, the amount of land necessary. But it was a different system. It's, it's streams didn't exist as they do in our current society, a post industrial revolution society where the means of production can be on a mass scale where you only need minimal amount of skilled laborers with not even that much skills to produce uh, abundant amount of resources for your company. And that's why the ridiculously rich were born out of the Industrial Revolution, known as the robber barons. Uh, you got people like Andrew Carnegie, uh, J.P. Morgan, and Rockefeller as super, like, billionaires for the time, you know, for the uh, adjusted for inflation were essentially like the richest people to ever live. And they managed to garner all the resources uh, that came out of the Industrial Revolution for themselves instead of um, create a better society for all mankind, which is why you have that kind of wealth disparity that happened during the Industrial Revolution and the infamous strikes that happened um during the Industrial Revolution for people to have better working conditions, higher wages, because unfettered capitalism, when you let the companies run amok, they go absolutely crazy and create monopolies over, like, let's say, a whole steel industry like Andrew Carnegie, and then they have no competition, so they can decide the price. Don't you have to have a certain level of non-competition to even be able to create a monopoly? Do you know what I'm saying? Well... You need competition. The whole part of the free market 
is that competition, is competition. And I understand that, not to cut you off, but I'm, what I'm saying is to a degree when you don't have competition, not because of your own fault, but because nobody else is actually out there competing with you, does that make you a monopoly just because nobody else is trying? I mean, yeah, it, it could, but it's not a, it, you know, the type of monopoly that I'm talking about with like Carnegie and Rockefeller is because they literally shut down their competition by making prices that are so low that no one will ever buy from them. And the other company, the fledgling company can't afford those low prices. Otherwise they won't make ends meet and then they'll fail. But the other company has enough wealth where they can afford a duration of time to lower their prices well below the price that it takes to extract this stuff out the ground. And like Rockefeller, you know, oil, in his scenario. Wait, so if I'm Subaru, I could just start selling my cars for $500 a piece and for for a, a year and no one else would buy anything but Subarus in America or wherever for a year and see, that's a monopoly? See, okay. What you, are the restrictions here? You, you you could do that, but here here's the problem with doing it in that scenario is that there's other companies that are just way bigger, Ford and Chevy that, so it almost doesn't even matter what your prices are? Yeah, they can afford that too, and it, it, it wouldn't matter. I mean, it would just be a race to have the lowest prices, and, and, and uh, you know that's kind of what they do already, but uh, you know, you have other big companies. But if you're like one of the first and you're the biggest, like Rockefeller, and companies try to spring up, well, yours is already way bigger than theirs. You should give a two-minute explanation about Rockefeller. I'm, I'm not sure I'm really familiar with what he's done or who he necessarily is. Rockefeller was the uh, oil giant during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, he pretty much had all the wealth. If you ever seen the movie on um, There Will Be Blood, that character is based on Rockefeller for sure. Uh, a lo loose, loose association, loosely based off of him. But he was an oil tycoon. And he, he, he struck, you know, black gold essentially is what people called it. And he struck it at a time when it was really necessary, you know, really needed for a lot of what was happening in the industrial revolution. So it was kind of like a right place at the right time type thing. Yeah, no, it was definitely one of those type things. And, you know, he got lucky, but he was one of the first to be, you know, brutal. He was essentially a brutal businessman and, did anything it took to be the company on top, you know, buying up other oil wells and buying oil wells that drilled into other reservoirs and took the oil from it, even though it wasn't his land, because that's how it can work. You can drill into a reservoir that goes underneath the right. land you, you bought in someone else's land. And essentially, he got super filthy rich, and there was a huge... Uh, you know, disparity in wealth at that time. And you would think in an abundance, you know, industrial revolution, it's abundance. Well, people were working 12, 15 hour days with barely any sleep and making pennies compared to these people that were making a ton because it was capitalism run amok. It was monopolies being allowed to happen he could also, you know, one of the other maneuvers you can do is the other fledgling oil companies, once you've, you know, suffocated them out, you go and buy their company from them and then your company grows and you just acquired all their assets. Okay. So we went on a little bit of a side tangent there, but we started talking about Rockefeller and all those guys. 
um, based on the, the fact that they had monopolies. So let's tie this back into the main topic of resource-based economy. Well, resource-based economy, on. Uh, one of the major key components of it is that the means of production is localized. The means of production is centralized with the general public. And the reason that's pro possible now is because we have things like 3D printers and we have things like robotic arms and automated systems. And, you know, 3D printers at this current time in day, most of the ones you see that are on the market that people own pretty much print in plastic. But I own two 3D printers and they're starting to come out with filament that prints in wood and that prints uh, circuit boards. So they now have 3D printers that can print infused metal and circuitry. I'm pretty sure they've actually 3D printed houses before. They have. I mean, those aren't on the market. But my point is, is that a lot of the, these buildings that I design that are in the fractal architecture uh, envelope and sustainability have rooms that are called production rooms, which is a new room that was never... Uh, used before but these rooms would have giant 3d printers in them capable of replicating almost any material good so being able to print out chairs tables um they're even these printers are going to get to the complexity where they can even print out full-fledged ipads and computers are you suggesting that a production room in a household becomes as normal as a dining room yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. Well, I'm suggesting that we already have um, pointless rooms that have had their time. Like, I don't know if your house has it, but my house did. We had a formal dining room yeah. besides our regular dining room. What the fuck do I need two dining rooms for? <laughs> I'm not sure that we had two dining rooms, but yeah, I definitely have like a living room, a dining room, you know, and then you have a foyer and then you know, it seems also too much. Well, foyers are all right. It's just an entryway. I'm for yeah. foyers, but... That's not that much space, but like a formal dining room. Come on. I already have a dining room. What do I need? Well, I'm gonna ha am I going to have like business people over? Like, what, what? It's just a regular house. I don't have like this high. <laughs> eat in the kitchen, right? Yeah. I mean, that. well, in the, in the in your regular dining room. What do you need a formal one for? <laughs> yeah. Don't you already have one? Right. Yeah. I and mean, it just sat there and it was pointless. It was the most pointless thing we ever had in our lives. There was no reason to ever eat in there. And, you know, that's when I thought, well. Couldn't this be like a production room? It's the perfect size, uh, 20 by 20 feet. That's that's not huge, but it's not tiny, but it, it's... Now, was this the playroom at yeah. your, your old house? Yeah. So before that was the playroom. We're, we're going to get back. Nobody's going to really know what we're talking about here, which is fine. They're going to see our, our, our history here, which is, you know, personal. Uh, uh, but now is the playroom before it was a playroom, a dining room? It was a formal dining room. Is a formal this, dining room. Now, it, was there a table in it? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, there was a there was a table in it, like our dining room table with chairs all around it and a light fixture above it. But we already had a dining room that was next to the kitchen with right. table and chairs around it and a light fixture above it. Right. So, I mean, this was just... And, and, and you know what's funny is that we never even used it during holidays because no one wanted to be all the way in the other room. Tucked away, yeah. So even when we had more people, then, you, you know, we would just attach another table. So this this extra room became uh, redundant. It was a useless room. So it just sat right. there until later on we turned it into, you know, well, uh, you could call it 
playroom or work room. I used it for all my projects, our architectural buildings that were constructed there. So it was an extra room for me to build a workbench. Uh, a lot of people have the. I would have mine in the garage if we didn't live in freaking Phoenix, where it's 115. Right, you can't put anything out there. Yeah, I can't work, and I'm not doing it. <laughs> not without an air conditioning or something. Not fun. And, and that's too much money to try to air condition the garage too. So right. But I understand what you're saying. So, you, so you're saying that the idea of having a production room in the future could be actually something that's you know a staple and um, actually usable to well, every family. Well, yeah, because instead of going to somewhere like Walmart to pit stuff up, you need a new pot or pan, or you need a new plate. You just print it, and all that you you need is raw resources. So this is where the resource base comes in, because. The means of production is localized at your own house. You don't require material products that are manufactured at a giant manufacturing plant anymore by a company. All you need is raw resources from the ground. You know, raw plastic that is harvested on um, uh, steel, aluminum. Right. But the idea with 3D printing, I feel like, is that it's going to be able to kind of expand out to, you know, it already is already in, you know, steel, aluminum, whatever. You can 3D print a lot of different things. I think that the idea is that it's going to be able to expand to that point at the consumer level as well. But currently, I feel like you're not allowed, you're not able to do those kinds of things. Currently, we aren't there, but we're heading in that direction. And the whole point of transferring to a resource-based autonomy is through gradual change. I would never suggest that something happen overnight. We just ditch capitalism, go to resource-based autonomy. All I'm talking about is an eventuality which is going to be reached within capitalism. And that eventuality is the fact that the, um, the, the consumer class is going to the wayside and soon there's going to be automation that takes over. And that's, uh, that's money that is not being reimbursed into the economy. And the economy works by uh, a, mi a middle class being able to buy material goods. Right. That ability to buy material goods is what creates jobs. That's why one of the most frustrating things to hear is that the um, cash base for the you know, billionaires make it so there's more jobs. No, that's not why there's more jobs. There's more jobs because there's a supply and a middle class that is willing to buy that supply, a demand for it, and a middle class that has money to spend on it. So really, it's the middle class having a bunch of money, which allows them to buy excess that excess is what keeps the economy booming and what builds it up. That makes sense because, I mean, realistically, I, feel, I don't know the numbers, but I'd imagine that most of our society is middle class. Um, a lot of the high class people, you know, at, they do buy groceries and, you know, middle class type things. We're all normal human beings. They say never meet your heroes, right? Because we're, you know, we're all just normal. Uh, but, but at the same time, I feel like those higher class people are oftentimes purchasing more extravagant things that we wouldn't be or um, not as many normal items that keep the industry moving forward and our economy churning. Well, yeah, they do produce extravagant things. They, they, they buy, um, they buy high ticket items. Right. But does that, do, do, do those high ticket items keep our economy churning? No, because those are big items that aren't made in, a, in abundance. Otherwise we would all have them <laughs> if they're in abundance. And there's a demand for them. We would all have them, wouldn't we? But that, that's not the chase. I, I guess they case. keep a, a certain boutique, boot, boutique, a certain boutique class of um, businesses running. Then, you know. 
Yeah, no, they 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 keep themselves uh, rich and, and powerful. That's that's how it always works. But I'm saying the autonomy doing good is reliant on a strong, large middle class having a bunch of money, and that's why autonomies after like World War II in the 50s were doing so damn good is because the middle class was the strongest it ever was, and we had uh, abundant means of production and we had abundant resources at that time. So the income um, inequality was far less than it is today. Uh, the people's wages were pretty high for what they were. And, you know, that's kind of the birth of the ideal American dream, which was to have a family, to have a dog, to have a car or two and TV in a bedroom and have a white picket fence outside your house. I mean, that's the, the reason it was the American dream was because if you worked hard, you uh, the fruits of your labor would, you know, they would give you all the stuff you wanted and give you a leisureful life. But doesn't this kind of go back to the very beginning of the episode when we we're talking about how, you know, I made the illusion to how I have a ceiling of what I want to make, right? And I have a ceiling of what I, I want to do, and I'm cool with just reaching that and then moving on. Doesn't this go back to kind of that situation a little bit when you talk about the American dream, how everybody kind of has this ideal thing that they want to get to. Why can't we create our own ideal? Why can't I define, well, I, not even why I can't because I can, but why can't more people see that they can define their own, you know, terms of success? Because mm, the programming, capitalism is a society, uh, economic system that is based on a, a scarce-based society. That's when it was created. It was created when there was scarcity. And you go, okay, well, who deserves what? Well, the people who deserved it then were the people who worked and the people who did nothing, well, they didn't deserve it because they didn't do anything. And so why should they get resources that there isn't enough to go around for everyone? Why should they have to have it? And so in that circumstance, uh, the system seems a little less brutal, but more fair. But nowadays in, in our current system, it, it isn't fair because it's not based upon the sweat of your brow, you know, your labor isn't it, it, your, the amount of wealth you have isn't based upon that because we have people who produce almost nothing in this society you know uh, essentially people like on uh, you know wall street executives i mean they're not really producing anything that's real so is it kind of how well you play the game then yeah in, no in your now, eyes? Well, now it's how well you play the game and it's if the game only values your type of labor because it doesn't value creatives, even though we need creatives, but it doesn't value them in that same sort, sort of way because being a creative is hard. So that's like being in the music industry or being an artist. Uh, those, those, those are hard work. I mean, it's hard to get good at painting and it's hard to get good at music, but we don't, we don't put the same value on those kind of goods that we do um, material goods. And so thus we don't, it, it isn't about how much work you put in anymore to something. It's about, ah, uh, it's about how it's perceived. It's, I get it's perceived it. usefulness. Get it. I get it. I get it. This makes so much sense. And that's not fair in a society that isn't scarce, a society with abundant resources. Why do we get to say, well, we don't really find your labors too useful, so we'll leave you on the street to die with no food, no water, because we think that's fair. But how is that fair? Because we're not 
in a resource-scarce society. We're in a perceived resource-scarce society where a certain top echelons of people think they deserve all the wealth. I mean, the wealth inequality right now, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are, you must admit is ridiculous. There's no way that one-tenth of one percent of people are that much more useful than the bottom 50% of people. That's not laziness. There's something intrinsically wrong with the system. One-tenth of one percent to own 90% of the wealth is insane. I mean, I, I looked at some of these people that own super yachts and go to this guy, what do you do? He must have like cured cancer or something crazy for uh, the greater good of society. Nope, he's just a hedge fund manager. Right. And I understand what you're saying. It's like uh, you can gain a tremendous amount of wealth without putting in a perceived amount of value. But also on the flip side, you know, we value. I, I love that you got my mind churning on this idea because of the idea of value and, and how we value things. It's so true. We don't value things based on how much work people put in. We value things on the way we see um we see a good in through our lens, right? But that's all of life. It's it's about how we perceive life through our own lens. And that's what's going to dictate or determine value or trust or whatever it is. And I just think it's amazing because it's, you know, it, so many times I think we, we think it's so easy to look at, you know, the value of something and say, oh, it's valued based on its, how much money it costs or how quote-unquote important it is to x y or z but it's not that it's values based on essentially at the very core of it how we perceive things through our own lens and that's different for everybody oh exactly and one good example of that is like uh brand names you could get the same pair of shoes as a brand name as you do against a non-brand name, but that brand name is one that they're going to spend a hundred bucks on. When you could get that same pair of shoes and resource value at $20. So that is made up value put on resource, uh, not resource, but um, name recognition. That That's not based upon the resource value or the production value even, but based upon a name value. Think of how crazy that is. For a second, that you're willing to put more value on something that has the same uh, uh, production and same resource use. But most likely nobody's going to see you eating, you know, the Safeway brand, you know, cereal at your house in the morning. It's not even like anybody's going to know that you're eating the off brand. But something in your own wiring makes you want to have the real brand. What is that? I don't know. That is that is wiring that is embedded. So here's another huge component of talking about the failure of capitalism. And uh, capitalism's it's an institution. And it's an institution like any other living organism or being is based on the need of self-preservation. So the reason this system is still clung on is because it's ingrained ourselves into our, our thinking in our society. Uh, think about it. Since day one, you are being bred to be a worker bee inside of a capitalist society. You're, you're, you're being, uh, I mean, think about it. Your, your life is run by bells. You, you, you get in at nine and you leave at three. So it's similar to the workday of nine to five. 
And similar to work bell whistles that would go off, you know, in factory workers back in the day, our education system, day one, is based on that. And why do you get an education? Well, because they elementary school they say well it's to pass middle school then you're in middle school well it's to pass high school when you're in high school well it's to pass to go to college college well it's to pass to get a career and get a job and it's like a fractal in of itself oh it 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 definitely is but it's all on conditioning and since day one you're taught that this is why you're doing it and you're like why am i in this school i don't like going to this school this isn't fun this isn't what i want to do and they go, well, it's because someday you got to get a job and you got to participate in our society. Well, it's a society that is already, you know, written in what it wants its inhabitants to do. I mean, if, if you go, well, you know, maybe I don't want to do that. What if I want to go see nature or what if I want to go learn about something else or play music? We go, well, that's not valuable. You can't do that. That's not a real career choice. You got to build yourself up to go be this little worker essentially to offer something with actual material value rather than perceived well yeah and that's when that's when they're saying well you need to contribute to this world you need to make a living for yourself and you can't be a lazy bum who doesn't do nothing and doesn't contribute nothing to society as a whole well the the problem is is that there are people who contribute nothing to society and have all the money, even though they contribute hardly anything. And so it's not, it's not based upon just your contribution to society. It's based upon uh, perceived contribution or perceived usefulness or lucky to be useful in something that doesn't actually improve the lives of the many. So instead of improving the lives of the many, our system now improves the lives of just a few uh, based upon it, it, its mechanics at its very foundation. So the very foundation of capitalism, or for that matter, a monetary-based system, is the fact that money is created from nothing. So our current system in the United States works by the national treasury printing out money and those treasury gets fake money. Um, and, and these kind of money notes that are given to them by the government are promissory notes. They're called, and then they're printed money and then money is circulated into the economy. So this money essentially comes from nothing It's created from nothing. And the problem with doing that is that, that money wasn't created out of a resource being pushed into the economy or a resource entering the economy. It was put by uh, a perceived value uh, in, in these promissory notes, which are created out of nothing. I mean, these are created out of thin air. And uh, a mon- it's, it's, it's a unsustainable type of economy because eventually, you know, this paper that is printed out will have little to no value because it's just created out of nothing. And the only value it has is what a value we assign to it. It's like an IOU almost. Yeah, well, it, it is. Well, it comes from the government in a promissory note to the treasury. And then that's essentially an IOU of money that it doesn't exist. Uh, the government doesn't actually have. And it's circulated in, you know, in actual money notes. Uh, that are circulated in into the economy so uh, all, all the money was made up and it's all essentially created out of debt 
that's the key word here, is that it's money created out of debt. And money that's created out of debt can never be repaid, otherwise there would be no money in circulation, if you get what I'm saying. If you repaid all the debt of the money that's been created, you will have no money in circulation. So debt must always exist for there to be money in circulation. And you see the kind of paradox that that creates. There can't be good without devil. Uh, devil. <laughs> devil, DJ. There can't be good without evil, DJ. Yeah. Well, or so they say. Well, that's that's not what, what this is. You're, we're, you're saying nah, that there, I don't know. I think there that can't be real stuff without made-up stuff, is what you're saying. Right, but it's kind of the same thing. You know, there can't be... There has to be balance in anything in life, whether yeah, it be good or evil, the, the, money, be, whatever it is. There's got to be balance, but what I'm saying isn't like a good or evil dichotomy it's, uh, exactly. like. But it is a dichotomy. It, it, it is to an extent, but in, in this scenario... I don't think it, there is a balance. There's money created out of debt, created out of nothing. That's not really... Ba- <laughs> I mean, that that's like saying, I, uh, you, you know, you have a balancing scale and you put a bunch of weight on one side and you put a bunch of imaginary things on the other side. Well, one side's not balanced. It's still going to weigh down. I mean, it's imaginary. You know what I mean? It's a negative. Debt is, is a negative. So there isn't necessarily a balance. And... What I'm advocating for is actually balance, more so. But that's the main flaw of the monetary system. And the reason monetary systems are going to start failing around the world is because of the rise of automation. They say by 2030, just 2030, you know, it's now uh, about to be 2019. The year 2030, they think 20, 30% of service industry jobs are going to be lost to automation. I believe that. That's near what I would consider the tipping point of there being economic, complete economic collapse. I mean, we're already, we we don't need to see it in much of fast food for it to be viable because we're already seeing this in McDonald's when you walk in and you can now completely order and pay for your food on your own. Um, It's only a matter of time till you're able to get your food without having your actual human cook it much less have every other fast food chain be on board with this. Yeah, well, it, it, exactly. I mean, robots are too cheap and they can work 24-7 and they don't cost, they only cost some maintenance upkeep, but... And they don't complain they, for the they most don't, part. They don't complain. They don't need benefits. They don't need workers' comp. They don't, uh, they don't want higher wages, no workplace accidents. <laughs> you know, there's none of the negatives that come with that and they produce at a very faster rate than humans, you know, more efficient. And say at McDonald's, they'll actually get your order right. They won't mess up your yep. order. Yep. They uh, there's no that the, that human communication error is gone. I mean, you can even see the stuff in self checkouts. You know what's funny is that there's certain aspects of our life where I think we'd like to see it be automated, or we think that it's okay for things to be automated. But then there's certain aspects of our life where we'd like you know things to stay the same and have that human touch and that human element you know i'm very biased in the way of audio because i'm an audio engineer so i always think that there should be a human on the other side of that and i always think that you know in audio there should be a uh, you know not only an objective view but a very sub subjective view on on mixing and, and and editing and such i think that in in life it's important that we do automate a certain amount of things like you know fast food restaurants or whatever we were talking about before but i think it is important that we keep in mind um that we do need the human element in some parts of what we have still as far as creative capacity 
Right. But those are enjoyable, fulfilling jobs. You don't do audio engineering because you have to make the living. You like doing audio engineering. Living was secondary to that. All of a sudden, you started making money off of podcasting, for example. That was secondary. That wasn't your prime. You're not like, you know what? I'm going to go record podcasts because I'm going to make a ton of money and be able to live off that job and make it a career. I don't think that was your prime motivation for doing it. Not at all. And so the job that you're suggesting has humans that are passionate about doing it, that like doing it. Have you ever met a passionate McDonald's or Harkins worker? No. So what you're suge- not suggesting but saying, rather, is that it's it's the creative jobs that need to stay you know, unautomated, but these very, very objective, simple, not maybe not simple to, to degrade anybody, but these very objective jobs can easily be automated. Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't have hired an AI to do what you're doing, nor would I have wanted to if the right. AI did have that capability. Right, that makes I'd sense. I'd be like, well, I don't really want the AI doing it. It doesn't feel personal. It doesn't care about my craft. Like, you actually care about what I'm talking about and care right. about the quality of what's going out. And you right. almost share the passion of the podcast with me. Well, that's huge. I, I need that. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel as stoked to do this if it was just an AI on the other side. But on the other hand, you do feel just as stoked to eat that Big Mac, no matter if you ordered it through the McDonald's employee or the, the, the robot screen. Well, have you ever had a uh, McDouble and gone, there's no heart put in this sandwich? Or you go, oh, it's good <laughs> or it's bad. Like, you know... You might know I've never I've never questioned the integrity of the making of my hot and spicy. <laughs> like these fries feel uninspired. That, however, I have felt. <laughs> the, those called heat lamp fries, not uninspired <laughs> fries. <laughs> oh goodness. So um anyway, coming around to my point here is that automation will only get rid of the jobs which are highly undesirable, don't have any creativity, and are honestly a waste of human potential and i think a waste of human life and i think right now people are wasting away at jobs that are meaningless to them and are are, are not necessary to have people slave away at uh, what i call slave wage jobs which are jobs that make just enough money for the bare minimum of survival so uh think, think about the parallels of how that is to slavery they were just given enough to do jobs they don't like and just given enough to survive well, if you're working a job you don't like all the time, 40 hour, forty plus hours a week and barely making ends meet, then it's almost like slavery. It's like they could better invest their efforts in something, you know, more beneficial for themselves is what you're saying. Well, most people do. Uh, have you ever seen, uh, what, what did people want to do as kids? Have you ever seen a kid go, you know what, I want to be a hedge fund manager when I grow up. I've never heard anyone say that. Generally not. I've never heard anyone say, I want to be a garbage truck driver. Or Hey, man, I did want to be a garbage truck driver. But that's a weird kid thing for some reason. But yeah, because you, you didn't realize what that entailed. It seemed like a fun job. It did. At the time, you're like, oh, I just drove this truck around. And But it, that, if the kid knew the actual capacity of that job, they would hate it. They would never want to do it. If you oh. brought them on a ride along, they would never be like, well... I still want to do this. You bet. Nah, that sucks. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, that, that wasn't fun. Now, you know, uh, it, it's just not what people are initially passionate about. And I think what people want to do as kids is very telling about what their natural spirit is passionate about before it's beat out of them, that that's unrealistic or that that dream cannot become true because you need to make ends meet and you can't make ends meet with that job or it's impossible or any of the above. 
I agree. I think that was one of the most powerful things that's been said all this whole hour was, uh, you know, that we can't beat these things out of kids. It's, it's like almost when, when kids are displaying their true passion or not passion, but their true behavior. That's almost the most raw form of, uh, humanization we can even try to achieve these days. And that's, that's the most raw unfiltered form of, of true, not belief, but you know, aspiration and, and personality. And I feel like so many times now because of school and not just school, I mean, there's plenty of great schools. I mean, I went to school and had a great time with it. You know, once I got to college and learned about something in life, but plenty of establishments do promote the wrong type of, um, growth. Oh, uh, of course they do, especially the educational institution is purposely built to follow a scarce-based monetary capitalist society. And that that's what you're trained for from day one. And that's like, for example, what I wanted to do as a kid is I wanted to build things. And I'm essentially doing that now as, you know, trying to do architecture and structural engineering. But the the difference is, is that for a while, I didn't want to do that. And the reason was because school beat that out of me to not want to do creative, new, revolutionary things. I'll, I'll take the listeners back just on a 30-second adventure here. A DJ and I grew up together. I was actually really still am and was good friends with his younger brother. And that's how I actually, you know, really got to know DJ. We lived down the street and I would hang out with his younger brother. And uh, then eventually me and DJ started hanging out after he picked on me for some <laughs> yeah, quick, quick <laughs> history lesson. I, I bullied people. Quick, quick history. I lesson. bullied Ned. No one else, just Ned. Uh, the the point is though, DJ has always been you know building his whole life, whether it be popsicle stick houses, um, boats, uh, RC car boats that he made out of you know water bottles or whatever. It be going to uh, you know Embry Riddle School of Architecture, you know camp. Whatever. Well, Embry Embry Riddle is an aerospace. I apologize. University. Frank Lloyd Wright. That's what architecture I mean. school. Okay, thank you for um, correcting me. So, point being that I think that 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 passion that I saw in you kind of disappeared once you got into a little bit, you, you know, your later years of college. And I feel like what you just said just now on air was kind of how I felt is that you kind of lost your passion and your spark for it a little bit. And then, um, there was a period of time where, you know, you were very focused on music and not so much building and architecture and all this stuff. And then you got your, your job as a structural technician. And I feel like ever since then, you've been back right back into wanting to design, build, um, you know, build planes, uh, 3d print, you know, when I go into your room again and there's like, you know, different little, uh, wood buildings and models that you've built and stuff. And I, th I think that there was a period of time where you kind of lost that will. So I definitely have to attest to that because I think well, um, that's true. It got reinvigorated by my sustainability class that I took at Paradise Valley Community College. In that class, I currently give lectures on sustainable architecture. And also I do a little bit about fractal architecture, what we're talking about here on the podcast. So uh, those two go hand in hand. It's where I got my formal experience with talking about uh, my idea of architecture and where I got that confidence to be able to go, you know what, maybe this is an idea that should be uh, taught to other people. You know, maybe this is an idea that other people would be open to. So it's kind of that feedback that I got from doing those lectures that I decided that people would be interested in these kind of topics. And uh, um, speaking about more about what you're saying about 
the school. I'm going to kind of tie that in a little bit more with why our system is an ultimate failure. And that's because we're being taught things out of textbooks in a modern society where we have computers on everyone's watch, everyone's phone. Yeah, you even got one Apple Watch right there. You got a little computer on your on your wrist. And we're still being taught an antiquated industrial revolution type of way. It's still geared towards that industrial revolution type of workforce mentality. And the problem is, is that we're seeing people get to college and they're not prepared for the jobs that are now available, which are becoming increasingly more technical and increasingly more advanced with technology. So one of the problems is our society also isn't keeping up with the new technology. It's not changing and capitalism isn't willing to change with one of its fundamental problems and that is the means of production is about to be taken over and the service industry is about to be taken over by automation and automation is going to be the ultimate demise and there's two different routes we can go down this path uh, there's three different actually we can stop progress in automation which i find utterly repulsive because why because we can't change our current economic system. We have to be stuck with people doing meaningless jobs. Just seems irrational as a human race to stop progress because our economic system can't change with the times. So that's I find that to be out of the question. And I think that won't, won't happen because capitalism is its own worst enemy. And if the means of production is cheaper to get to the masses through automation is going to happen because capitalism is obsessed with one thing, the bottom line, profit margins. And it, so it's its own worst enemy in that sense because no company is going to want to stop automation and save money to have the economy going because they're self-serving industries, corporations. And I don't blame them for that. That is the programming in our monetary-based system that is encouraged. If your company isn't concerned with the bottom line then you die your company dies so i can't blame individual companies for wanting to bottom line only profit because if they don't then that company ceases to exist so i'm i'm not blaming them but that system encourages that that system only lets the um supposed rich you know it's supposed to be almost like social darwinism that only the good ideas survive, but that's not what happens. That's not the reality of the situation. It's almost as if our current economy promotes, you know, positive profit margins more than it promotes the idea of new ideas. Well, it, pro it promotes that and excess and waste, and it promotes what we've already done. And that's one of the big things that I can speak to as being a structural technician is that in the structural industry, we are concerned about two things all the time and it's driven into us deadlines and profit deadlines profit deadlines profit over and over and over and over and over again every building we build is because we want to hit a deadline and we want money so it's always money and deadlines money and deadlines is the only reason we do anything and the reason we don't do anything revolutionary or new is because We've already done it this way and it's been working and making us money. Why should I run the risk of doing something new that may or may not work and may not be cost effective for us if I can just do what we've already done and make money? There's no incentive to do anything revolutionary in that kind of sense. 
is only the only revolutionary stuff to do is in marketing and what how can we market this in a revolutionary different way it's already worked let's just market it better than the other guy and we'll still make our profit so the incentive to do anything radical is lost and it's especially because no one is willing to take any risks and we see that with our movies nowadays and our entertainment is that no one wants to take a risk with something that's not formulated that has already worked so they use movies that are formulated to be a certain type of way like the superhero movies are all formulated to be the same way because they know they work they know they can get a certain amount of profit off of it our music is in the same sense we have formulated music which is written by only two separate different people and those two people determine that that formula works and it will make them money so let's just get a voice that works have them write that formulate music and make the amount of profit that they can make off of that yeah i think you know like i said earlier we're so drawn to do what's worked as humans and we're so drawn to um call back on things that have priorly been accept priorly word maybe not have been prior successes and i think this just kind of goes to what you're saying is you know what works works and and everybody wants a part of it and we've lost that ability to kind of create and and innovate on our own and i'm not that's not to say that you know everybody doesn't innovate anymore and there's nobody that innovates or creates but i definitely have to agree with you what you're saying you know i think um once there's a recipe for success now that's exactly what um everybody would like to follow and i think that we've lost that creativity no we have and that's the ultimate mentality of why we don't change our economic system just think about how crazy it is to challenge this economic system people go whoa when you say you're against capitalism we go oh well you're communism as if there's only two different economic uh system choices well, what was there before those two things were made up? Well, there was other types of economic systems. like There was open conversation also. Yeah, well, we, 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 we always, you know, we, we changed them. We go, oh, well, that system doesn't work. This one doesn't work. But the problem is, is that these institutions get so obsessed with self-preservation that they don't allow themselves to go, hey, this maybe isn't working for us. Maybe we should realign ourselves. It always happens because uh, catastrophe happens or they form at a necessity. Um you know, or, or, or necessity that is happening, like so immediate necessity, not one that is perceived to happen down the line. The rise of automation is something that is perceived to happen down the line. Doesn't seem like an immediate need to change your economic system. But the problem is, is that the rise of automation is an exponential growth, and that exponential growth, like a fractal, Fibonacci sequence, going back to some of our first episodes grows exponentially at an exponential rate and creeps up on you until it's too late. And that is the problem that we're having right now is that we're so stuck in our uh, you know, simple worldview, uh, economic worldview of just only capitalism or communism or socialism exist that we're not willing to go, well, maybe there's going to be a problem here. And you're not hearing in any of these political debates or anything you're hearing about jobs, 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 jobs. That's all you hear about until they drone on and on about the economy and jobs and the economy and jobs. But the problem is, is there's not going to be any jobs and there's not going to be any economy if we keep the same pattern of growth that we see now in automation. Those things won't exist. And people go, okay, well, you know, the Industrial Revolution, they thought there was going to be no more jobs, but there was jobs created out of you know, the, the, the new type of advancement that happened. The problem is, is that this is different. This is 
the means of production and labor becoming automated, not simplifying the means of production and labor. This is a robot that replaces human capability that we've never seen before. That's not going to create new jobs. It might at first, but it's not going to create new jobs down the line because you got rid of the actual producers, the actual uh, um, manufacturers, which were human. You're getting rid of the human element. You're replacing us. That's never been done before. This is the first. You can't look back in history and go, well, that happened in history, so this might not happen. Well, inevitably, like you said, with a new, you know, the new t- quote unquote taking of jobs, there has to be a new dawn of new you know, granting of jobs and, and, and whether it be auditors to make sure that these uh, automation things are working or, you know, whatever it is, there's going to still be a new place that opens up where we need people. And like you said, jobs will create themselves, but they won't necessarily create themselves. I mean, I put words into your mouth. You didn't say jobs will create themselves, but hopefully jobs will open up. But we do as humans need to be able to put the processes into it to um you know make those jobs open up we can't just sit around here and wait we have to actually go out there create innovate and imagine like we're talking about i mean it ties it back to you know an hour ago what we were saying in the beginning yeah no uh, uh, we we do have to reinvent but the 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 problem that i see right now is that where we don't think about reinventing in the correct way we're thinking about reinventing stuff to work in a capitalist market. And I don't think that's the right line of thinking. And that's why uh, fractal architecture isn't in line with the current economic thinking. It's uh, made to be constructed in a resource-based economy. And fractal architecture a lot of times works on resource management, not cost management. So it's not cost analysis. It's resource analysis based upon carrying capacity of the earth. And that's where I'm coming to our conclusion here about what a resource-based economy is. And it's economy based upon resource allocation and carrying capacity of the earth. And you might ask, okay, well, how's that done? How do you perceive something to be the carrying capacity of the earth? Well, we do that through various instruments now. We can measure the size of rainforest. We can measure uh, humidity, uh, atmospheric temperatures. We can measure surface temperatures, ocean temperatures, salinity of the ocean, currents of the ocean, we can monitor our planet relatively closely. Uh, if you look at our planet and all the, all the complex dynamic ecosystems that exist in it, we have pretty good ways of understanding what the tipping point of destroying one of those complex systems is. We don't fully understand them, but with the use of fractals, we're starting to be able to see the larger picture and the larger patterns that emerge from these complex dynamic systems. And if we can say, okay, well, this complex dynamic system can do without this many resources and still be able to survive, well, that is an example of resource allocation based upon carrying capacity. Those resources are then freed up for uh, the human population to be able to use as they will in any sort of way they want to. Now, the problem comes when you go, okay, well, what if people just want to sit around? What if they want to do nothing and just get free resources? Well, they'll be able to survive. And if they want to live an unfulfilling life of doing nothing and sitting on the couch, that doesn't affect me. That doesn't affect my ability to live and do what I want to do over here. So I don't see that as the biggest problem in the world. They're not 
needed to contribute to my survival. So you're suggesting that people worry too much about what's going on around them rather than what's happening in their own life. Yeah, well, I don't care about those people being lazy. And you go, okay, well, that's going to lead to a mass amount of population. How do we decide... Uh, what each person gets and you know each person is just gonna have like 50 kids if we do that well i don't think so because what we'll do is we'll do you know the resources would be allocated per family so the less kids you have the more resources you, you can allocate to yourself that you that you're given at the bare minimum so if you want to be a lazy person just produce a bunch of lazy kids well you're gonna have almost nothing almost not even enough to survive because uh, what, what will be encouraged is that having a small family of two would be ideal for your resource allocation without, you know, you know, without actually saying, okay, there's a law where you can't have two people. Well, that's authoritarian. I don't want a government that dictates everything. Freedom, I think, must be still uh, allowed. But the thing is, freedom only goes so far. And we, we're not free to do what what we want in this world because... The world has natural systems that say, well, we don't care what you want to do in your freedom. Like the, the physical law of the universe is the physical law. There's nothing you can do. And if there's only X amount of resources and you have over 9 billion people, well, there won't be enough to go around and there will be disparity and there will be scarcity. So uh, it, it's, it's definitely in our best interest to abide the law of that and try to lower the amount of people we have and keep a population of around uh you know less than nine billion nine or less i would say now i believe that in this resource-based economy that the earth could happily support 11 billion people now i can't speak to how much more than that but the reason a lot of people have kids is because of scarcity and a lot of the places that have more kids than than you know is sustainable is because they're in an impoverished area where the kids' survival rate is lower. But where you have higher survival rates, like here in America, the amount of offspring that a, a mating couple will have is 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 on average two. That's a sustainable number. Two people create two more people. That number is sustainable. That number does not grow the population too much that's a sustainable growth so to speak so those two people pass and then that's two people have two new people you get what i mean so it's a sustainable amount of people and if we can get this a sustainable amount like that then resource allocation won't be an issue and we can happily allocate enough resources for everyone to live comfortably now what they do with the resources is their uh, prerogative whatever they want to do with the resources is their choice uh, this system wouldn't have any form of formal governance it would just be governed by the people and by advanced ai so to speak but not ai that's conscience so don't think that this is some sort of skynet ai that i'm talking about it's 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 a form of quantum computing that's just advanced enough to be able to calculate the carrying capacity of the earth and it's by that that we will align ourselves economically with and the carrying capacity is essential because the earth doesn't allow us to take too many more resources otherwise it'll lead to utter collapse and that's what we're doing right now because capitalism is about unlimited growth 
It's about unlimited gain and unlimited amount of resource gathering. We have we live in a finite world. Unlimited growth does not work in a finite world. And capitalism does not work without unlimited growth. So there's a paradox within our own natural ecosystem and our uh, economic system. Those two are at odds with each other. Finite planet, unlimited growth of economic achieval. Those two things lead to the paradox. And the reason I think that resource-based economy is the best solution is because it's based upon what the earth allows us to have. How much resources we can take from the earth without utterly devastating. It's finite. Yeah, it's finite. And resource-based economy is based upon conservation of resources and not just waste. Like, oh, I'm done with that resource, so it's time to throw it out. Because throughout our lives, we use some resources with a cradle-to-grave cycle of like five seconds. Uh, the, you know, We recorded this near uh, Christmas. Just think about how everyone used wrapping paper to conceal a gift for... 10 seconds before that wrapping paper is straight to the trash straight to the trash what the hell it makes no sense i mean that is something that you see in a rampant consumerist society when they're having a consumerist holiday which is all christmas is now a consumerist holiday where people start in freaking october after halloween Start talking about selling goods, selling goods, selling goods, ju just for the sake of buying them. It's capitalism's favorite pastime, buying stuff that you don't need for reasons that are unknown. Capitalism's favorite pastime. Because if we just bought what we needed, we wouldn't boost the economy and the economy would collapse like it has before. So you're saying that buying things that we don't need is actually boosting the economy? Buying things we don't need is essential for our economy essential for our economic prosperity without I mean, you buy it, things that you don't need to what you buy things that you don't need to well of course i buy things that i want but so the, do i but the thing is our society is based upon things in excess of things we don't need i live pretty minimally actually i only have one pair of shoes i have a couple pairs of shirts and that's about it yeah but i'm saying you buy rc planes and you know, hobby, hobby, fun items. True. So, but I get what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're, what you're saying is not valid. It's just that we, right now around the Christmas season, America and whoever else in the world that celebrates it is so rampant with that consumer, you know, um, idea versus, you know, just randomly maybe just purchasing a gift for yourself out of the random I with your own money you know as a yeah, little reward but you're, you're saying that this whole idea of just consuming a mass amount is like well not it, healthy. It, it's out of control and uh, i'm gonna bring it back to i'm gonna, I'm gonna say something about what you said about the planes and one of the thing is is that that's for my creative outlet I, for example you don't need this microphone that i'm speaking into to survive but you do it because your creativity and your creative outlet uh, is why you bought this resource i didn't buy my plane to just consume it i bought it to build it uh learn about it and be able learn. to construct my own airplanes and those airplanes are actually the designs that i construct are actually to work in unison with fractal architecture so this i'll go into more 
depth a different episode, but I'd like to give a quick, real quick two-second rundown here, and that's uh, the architecture uses mechanical systems as well, stuff like drones. So that's kind of where my creative you know, hobby of flying airplanes and drones comes into play with my idea of architecture because it works in unison with them. But beside that point, what I'm basically saying is that our economy needs excess of consumption and without it consuming things we don't need for things that aren't creative by the way things to just sit down and consume is necessary in our society and that's a waste that's making our economy have to purchase things that are outside the carrying capacity of the earth and aren't sustainable and this will eventually lead to the collapse of uh natural complex dynamic systems ecosystems that the earth has it's it's just not i mean unlimited and finite is not something that ever works together and resource-based economy is the use of resources not just cradle to grave of wrapping that stuff you know throwing away the wrapping paper 10 seconds after we've used it because if you only have a an amount of re finite amount of resources you can use that wrapping paper is going to be made into something else. <laughs> You're not just going to throw it away and then be like, oh, well, I don't have to deal with that shit ever again. There's going to be a recycling of resources within the home unit. The only... Just be cognizant of it. Yeah, and, 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 and for example, it'll be like my uh, ecosphere that I have in my room, which is a controlled, enclosed, sustainable ecosystem of shrimp and algae that coexist together and can live up to 13 years without any sort of input i don't open it i don't feed them it's a completely enclosed sphere uh it, it was an invention done by nasa engineers and all that is exchanged is material matter and all that is lost is solar energy through mechanical motion of swimming through the water that's the only energy lost and then all material matter is recycled. So this is what these house units in fractal architecture would be. They would be units that recycle their material matter for use of different goods once a good has become uh, non-functional or useless to us. It'll then become uh, another type of good. And now here's, my, here's the major point. This is huge. This will actually create a larger amount of ability to have a larger amount of materials than ever before in any other economy and the reason being is because potential for goods has increased meaning if i have a telescope or something and I'm, i get into telescopes i want to use that well i just use x amount of my budget of resources that i have for the family household right but if I get tired of that telescope and that telescope's just going to sit for months in the side and then also I'm into like go-karting, well, I can recycle that matter and use it towards a go-kart instead, meaning the potential for things you can own is actually greater than the amount of, that you can have if you, get, if you follow what I mean. That's saying that you can't use all these items at once if you're a rich person who has all these toys you can only use them X amount of time, and then the rest of the time they're just sitting there. Well, this wouldn't work in this. And this, the resources would be broken down, 
recycled and then reprinted into something new that you like to use. Meaning you actually have the potential for playing with more toys than you ever had before. So I could snowboard in the winter and skateboard in the summer. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I'm done with the snowboard. I'm going to break down the material matter. That'd be unreal. Now I'm going to skateboard. That'd be insane. So you have the potential to have more shit. Than I'd you've love ever, to see a world where that happens. Than, than you've ever had before because that potential exists in, in an imaginary zone of what could and couldn't possibly be made. Now that's some powerful stuff. That might be the most powerful point you've made all episode. And, th- and that's what my point is that everyone will actually have more, not an actual physical goods, but potential for physical goods. I think uh, I think in an hour and a half we've packed up a lot for yes. everybody to to take in. So I think we're kind of reaching the end here. But what I've got to say is that I, I think that the I, the the big idea here for me on this episode was that we've lost the ability to create, and I, this is the fourth time that it's been mentioned by me. But I think that this world has the ability to create and we haven't fully lost it, but we've just lost the will to create like you've mentioned. And I think that it's things like this podcast and there's things like these conversations that you're bringing up that are going to help push those conversations forward and, and move the envelope and move that fold. Um, and, and I appreciate that you're out here trying to spearhead it because, you know, so much of it is, is difficult to understand. And I know, a lot of this episode may be a little bit vague to people, but just what you said at the end is is huge. Like, could you imagine a time where you could have a product and then recycle it? We could be so efficient that we could have print our own products, recycle them, print them into new things. I think that's just like that. That forward thinking is innovation and creation. So I thank you for bringing that to this episode and like really bringing that to you know, this world and trying to, through this podcast, um, you know, help everybody out by being innovative again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. That's what I aim to do. So in closing, what I'll say is that resource-based economy isn't perfect. It's not meant to be a utopia. I would never want it to be a utopia and I don't think anyone ever would, but it's a step in the right direction. It's the step into creating a truly advanced society that uh, flourishes for everyone and for the greater good of all mankind and a society that is able to advance to astronomical levels of consciousness and technological advancement into a new realm of existence for humans that we never thought was possible and it's all thanks to the fact that we can detach ourselves from scarcity any other animal is scarce and the only reason we have any sort of violence in this world is because of scarcity so it would be interesting to see what kind of society we can create post-scarce-based society. And if everyone has all their needs met, it would be interesting to see the lower crime rates, the lower murder rates, and how advanced we can become and how we can focus instead of focusing on the greater good of a capitalist market for the sake of having money, we can instead focus on improving our own lives, improving ourselves and becoming better people and reaching for the stars again. Uh, Having dreamers that dream to go to Mars, that dream to colonize other planets. Those type of dreamers I hope to see come back with a new type of society that isn't based on profit motive alone, but a society that instead drives to 
enhance the greater good for all mankind and essentially start dreaming and reaching for the stars again. 